You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 201. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. There are so many things that I can get into today with Professor Gelman, whether it's Bayesian inference or election analysis. There is a lot in here, and the entire interview is like 30 minutes, so it's going to be a real uh, content-packed episode today. For those of you who are unfamiliar, Andrew Gelman is kind of a giant in the statistical world, in the Bayesian inference world. He is a professor at Columbia, and he writes both popular stuff at his blog, for example, which I'll link through the show notes page at localmaxradio.com slash 201, and also uh, stats applied to politics, which everybody loves, but also in the research world where uh, many of us in the whole statistical machine learning business are familiar with uh, some of his textbooks and his academic papers. So yeah, just listen to this from his bio. Andrew has done research on a wide variety of topics, including why it is rational to vote, why campaign polls are so variable when elections are so predictable, why redistricting is good for democracy, reversals of death sentences, police stops in New York City, statistical challenges of estimating small effects, probability that your vote will be decisive, seats and votes in Congress, social network structure, arsenic in Bangladesh, radon in your basement, toxicology, medical in- imaging. It just it goes on and on. So uh, this guy knows a lot of stuff, and I got a lot out of the conversation. Even I, who have been doing this for many years, uh, kind of made me think about certain things in uh, in slightly different ways. So, all right, let's bring up the interview. Professor Andrew Gelman, you've reached the local maximum. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Uh, all right. So let's start with um, Bayesian statistics and Bayesian inference, because this was kind of, um, this was kind of an aha moment for me like 10 years ago and I was in grad school at NYU and I was just like yes this is this is the way to approach problems and uh, I was kind of interested in like AI at the time because I was you know computers I was a software engineer I wanted to work on something interesting I was like this is the way to 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 build artificial intelligence so I guess I want to know your story like how did you first discover Bayesian statistics Bayesian inference um, was it in solving a particular problem um, are you still enamored with it? Are you, I, I mean, you're kind of known for it. I've got your, got your book right here, but, uh, like, uh, are, are you still, um, do you think it could be overused? Um, well, let's start with your, let's start with your origin story on that first. Oh, it just, I learned it. So I was a student and right. that was what, that was one of the methods that they taught me. And I think I was kind of rebellious, so I didn't want to use it because they Mm. taught it to me. And I was doing a project with a colleague. We were estimating the effects of redistricting, of legislative redistricting. And um, in order to do that, you you need to estimate what would happen had the election gone differently. So the idea would be, suppose you have a state where one of the parties gets 52% 52% of the vote and 62% of the seats in the legislature. Well, okay. is that fair or unfair? We'd like to see what would have happened had that party only got 50% of the vote or 48% of the vote. What percentage of the seats would they have received? Now, so, it, obviously, you know, it's the point out, like it depends where those votes come from. 
It does. You need to make an assumption. So the simplest assumption, which isn't too far off, is uniform partisan swing. So if if it was 52% statewide, then if you subtract 2% everywhere, you get down to 50%. Well, not exactly because you can't get negative percent, but you can fix things like that. That's that's fine. You can get a an assumption-based inference on what would have happened had the statewide election gone differently. But that's only one possibility of uniform swing. If you look at sequences of elections, you, you don't get uniform swing. You could look at the residual variation. So if I predict an election two years from now from this election, then I'll get a certain amount of residual variation um, uh, unexplained variation at the district level. If I predict four elections from now, I'll get a slightly more higher variation. If I pre- four years from now, if I predict six years from now, I'll get even higher unexplained variation. So what we did is we took the unexplained variation at eight years out, six years out, four years out, and two years out, and extrapolated it down to zero. And when you extrapolate that down to zero, you don't get zero variance. You get a certain amount of unexplained variation. That was what we used in our model. Um, yeah, this is so actually it's, it's funny you mentioned this because there's redistricting going on here in New Hampshire now. And I was trying to figure out what's going on. Now, I just moved here. I lived in New York for 15 years. So I don't really I don't know what's going on. I don't know wh- which neighborhoods are what. But it's you, you almost want to think when approaching the problem like, hey, there are probably some towns that are going to just remain constant no matter what happens and that some swing very easily. Um, I think I've heard of this in like other states as well. So, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing this plays into kind of your uh, interest in like um, uh, a hierarchical modeling, perhaps. Uh, is that sort of one of the approaches? Yeah, although in our model was simpler than that. So we, I mean, we we allowed for there to be a, a statewide swing from one election to the next in any given right. state. And then we allowed individual districts to vary from that swing. But we didn't have district level information to say some districts vary more than others. We just said the districts can vary. Right. Then in order to ask it, so this is called statistically, it's called a measurement error model. So you'd like to estimate how the election would have gone differently had there been a swing. The model is that there's an, a kind of underlying partisanship of the district and you observe that with some error these are the kind of models you would use in psychometrics to say that your test score is your ability plus bias plus error Uh, to once we get that once once we have a distribution we can take simulations from the distribution and then make statements about how the election would go how many seats a party would get given the votes it got to make this model, you need to have some assumptions about the distribution of underlying election result or underlying partisanship. If you looked at things, you notice is that there are some Democratic leaning districts and some Republican leaning districts, maybe some in the middle. So we fit a model in which the underlying distribution of partisanships came from a, a distribution which was a mixture of three modes, one for the Democrats, one for the Republicans, and one for everything else. Uh, this requires fitting the mixture model from data, and it turns out that that fit can be very noisy. So right. we used Bayesian methods so that we could get a more stable fit. So we put priors 
on these things saying this is for the Democrats, this is for the Republicans, this is for everything else. So it was a matter of trying to stabilize our inferences and get reasonable predictions. So that was in that particular example, that was my motivation. Yeah. Do do you have like, um, uh, did you have like feedback on that, on on whether it was successful after the next, you know, it it sounds like a tough thing because you only have one election. You don't get to see how to, uh, uh, you know, you, you don't get to run that experiment very often. Well, we fit it on old data. Our method still gets used. Uh, I, I think it's 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 a pretty innocuous model. Like as you alluded to, it's one can use more information. And nowadays, redistrictors use tons of information for the yeah. purpose for the purpose of <laughs> estimating kind of shapes we're going to get in the next. Uh, well, that's all going on this year in in states across the country. So I kind of wonder what kind of shapes we're going to get. Oh, sure. But if you're just trying to estimate this um, kind of uh, seats votes curve, uh, then I think what we did makes sense. I think it's reasonable. And I'm sure there are other ways of going about it. But our motivation, the motivation for using a Bayesian approach was that we had some prior information and the model was set up that it would have been like it would have been quite artificial to try to estimate the parameters of the model without using prior information. It might've been kind of difficult to recover everything and kind of pointless. Right. Right. What, so especially when we were, you know, in the middle of the election last year, but pretty much all all year round, every, every year, you kind of see arguments or like you, you kind of see, either political forecasts or arguments about what's going to happen that seem to be based on statistics that are put out by the media that are kind of, um, that kind of sound nuts. Like, um, do you notice any of those? I think, I don't know if you've spoken about those in your blog. I know you (laughs) do speak about stuff that like kind of looks nuts that are put out in the media. I think things are, are most, a lot of the stuff people say are pretty reasonable. Uh, The generic congressional ballot is, can be a pretty good predictor of the, forthcoming congressional elections. So Hmm. uh, that suggests that it will be a good year for Republicans next year. Um, There's empirical support for that claim. I think the one that, that, that I didn't like, and and you might've heard of this one, and I don't know what you think of it. What there was a professor somewhere who said like, here are the seven boxes you have to check and that's going to be who becomes president. And I was like, (laughs) No, there's no way this works. Unless yeah, I, I to the last you know twenty elections, but yeah, that I I agree that that's a kind of naive sort of deterministic thinking. It, it's kind of funny. So if you want to predict presidential elections, it you don't have as many data points as you think, uh, right. because first, like it's not clear that like anything before 1948, in some sense, it was a, a different system. We didn't have the same sort of two party system that we have now. But then also, like you're not going to get much. I mean, put it this way: if your if your method doesn't predict that Ronald Reagan wins in 1984 and Richard Nixon wins in 1972 and a few other landslides. Uh, your yeah, then your method is terrible. But like every method will get those, any reasonable method will get those right. So those right. don't provide a lot of information, mm. um, you know, any more than like if, if you have um, the um, best team in the league and it beats the worst team in the league, that doesn't really tell you much about how good the teams are. Uh, then you have some other elections, like 
1960, 1968, and 2000, which were essentially tied. Your method deserves no credit for predicting that Kennedy won in 1960. It was basically a tie. It could have gone either way. The right. same with Gore winning in 2000 and and um, uh, Nixon winning in 1968. So, you, because again, that's like that's like predicting a coin flip. So if you think about it, you have only a, you have fewer cases than you think. And in particular, you don't want your method to predict coin flip elections more than half the time. If right. you're if you if you tune your method to correctly predict 1960, 1968 and 2000, um, even setting aside who you want to call the winner of 2000, if you tune your method to do that, you are overfitting your your model. Yeah. And yeah. So, right. They're, they're all one offs, in other words, in, in many ways. Right. But I mean, you're not I wouldn't say you're not overfitting if you try to predict 2020, 2016 or some of these elections yeah. where like one one candidate clearly won. But if you want to predict the ties, that's providing no information at all. Yeah. Yeah. OK, so I you have something in your writing that uh, I love problems with with names like this called the uh, Piranha Problem. <clears throat> So um, can you just tell us what that is uh, real quick? So, well, the name comes from the idea that you can't have a fish tank full of piranhas because one, they'll start fighting each other until at most one is still living. I don't know if that's actually true about piranhas, Hmm. but it's a principle that we apply to social science reasoning. So if we... Well, if we continue with the election theme, people have made various claims about what affects voting. Some people wrote a paper that said that what time of the month it is uh, will uh, affect how women vote. They claim that during certain time of the month, women were 20 percentage points more likely to support Barack Obama than in another time of the month. Now, another paper claimed that the outcome of a local college football game before the election uh, can swing elections by as much as three percentage points. So if your local team wins, you're more likely to vote for an incumbent. Another, there was another claim that elections are determined by shark attacks. Well, there aren't that many shark attacks, but the point was that they're supposedly determined by all sorts of very minor things. Well, of course, any election, if close enough, can be determined by anything, but these effects can't all be large. Um yeah. One way of, and you know, one way of thinking about this is that all these things are happening at once, and so like, what happens if there's a shark attack, but it's the wrong time of the month, uh, things like that. Um, these these effects would all would all interact with each other, and so I, I think the correct statement is that lots of things have lots of effects, but the effects are not stable. They're not predictable. Like it could be that a particular odd news event could affect how people vote, but it would be very hard to predict that ahead of time. And statistical patterns that occur based on past data, there's no particular reason that they would reappear in the future. So would it be fair to say like that the um, the, the studies that you cited, you're pretty skeptical of those? I'm skeptical of those studies, and I, I, yes, I, I think that they're very noisy, 
so you you get a f- measurements on a small number of people or a small number of elections. Uh, there's not a strong theoretical reason um, for for believing these things. There's a reasonable theoretical argument for believing very weak effects. But when you survey people, very few people say they're going to change their their mind on how they vote. So the implausibility is not that. I, I believe that if your football team wins and you're happy, that could affect how you're going to vote. I don't think it's going to swing three percent of the voters, though, because yeah, I don't crazy. think I don't think there are three percent that are going to be swingable in that way. Maybe in a particular election, it could. I don't mean that it never could. What one analogy we drew in the in the piranha paper was between piranhas and butterflies. So you've heard the argument. I'm sure that a butterfly flapping its wings in Australia could somehow change your life uh, through sure. some unexpected sequence yeah, of events. And, and well, I think it could be. But the thing that I will say is that a butterfly flapping its wings will not have any predictable effect on you. And so I think that there's a big difference between saying people vote for all sorts of reasons and saying that you could predict how someone will vote based on these changes. Do you think it, it is it like possible in general, if you have uh, a situation, maybe an election, maybe something else where there are lots of small effects, do we have any hope of ever measuring any of these effects? Is there any way of like kind of trying to suss them out or is it just pretty much hopeless overall? I think you can interview people and ask them why they're voting. Um, One. Right. But in in other (coughs) contexts that might not be possible. Like if you're studying, I don't know, something in nature or something like that. Yeah. I, it's, I, in nature, sometimes you can do experiments. I, I think that one thing that I resist that I don't like about some of those studies that we were talking about is I think they're kind of insulting to voters. And well, if the results are true, we should know if, if voters are complete, are, are voting based on completely irrelevant things, we should know that. But if they're not like, it's just another story and it makes sense for voters to vote to vote based on economic performance. It makes sense for voters to want to balance and vote for the party that's out. Um, Now, people believe all sorts of things. um, And I'll just say that, like, to be just very generic, name your religious dogma. There are multiple religions and nobody believes in all of them, right? So like whatever whatever your personal religious preference is, I can pretty much guarantee there are a few other, a few religious beliefs that you think are false that are held by millions of people. And obviously there are political beliefs that like people who believe that Donald Trump won the election, there, there's, there's no evidence for that. Um, there's been a lot of purported evidence for that. And whenever people look at it, it all falls apart, like whether it be the list of dead voters or or anything else. So people believe all sorts of things that they want to believe. So I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that voters are entirely rational, uh, but I do think that people vote. I feel like the evidence that I've seen people, is that people, people want a system. They want to be like, oh, the football team won or something. And that's well, kind of... Well, I don't know about that. I was just going to say that I think people vote for reasons. And like, yeah, one of the reasons is that you feel things are going well 
with your country. And sure, like your football team winning might make you feel well. So again, like you can have small things I could imagine, but um, like, I think they, I haven't ever seen evidence that such, such effects are large. Um, and I have seen convincing arguments for why people could think such effects are large, even if they're not by doing noisy studies, because if you do a noisy study, well, you're only going to re report things that are still called statistically significant, which are two standard errors away from zero. And if you have a noisy study, you have a big standard error. So anything that's reported has to be large. So there's a kind of sociological reason why people will find large large results. So one reason I'm, that's one reason I'm not convinced of these claims is because I, it's pretty clear to me how such spurious claims could easily just continue to pop up. Right, right. Does this feed into like the larger uh, replication crisis in, in science? Yeah, it, it it does. If if you study something in a in a noisy way, then you'll get noisy estimates, and so that that has seems to have in many fields caused people to overestimate effect sizes and be overconfident about how much things will replicate. Hmm. Okay, I have. Um, <laughs> I have this one I'm afraid is going to get too technical because not everyone in the audience, but, um, I, I wanted to ask you about like Bayesian search and samplers, uh, because it's something like I've had to use, obviously, like, I feel like the, um, the, the no U-turn sampler, which I know you've been involved in has been like very popular with people, uh, that I've seen, um, a lot Monte Carlo methods I've used a lot. What, what? Uh, maybe, maybe you could talk about like, why is this important research? Is there still ongoing research to improve these like samplers and search methods? And, um, maybe let's try to like, oh, this <laughs> is like, okay. Say, like what, why this is important because I feel like. Uh, we're, we're uh, okay. So it's kind of important, like for the same reason that if you want an electric car, you need better battery technology, okay. right? Otherwise yeah. you have to keep like, you know, plugging it in again. And like, so right, right. <laughs> If you, I, mean, I think that modern, so well, we have big data, right? So big right. data is messy data. It's not random samples. It's whoever you have data on. It's not randomized experiments. It's like some people are exposed and some people aren't. Uh, often the thing that you care about is not what you have a direct measurement of. So you need to model to make mathematical or statistical models to connect the data you have to the questions that you want to ask. And even if it's something as simple as a randomized experiment, like a clinical trial in medicine or an AB test in industry, even there, you still need to generalize to the real world. And a medical experiment won't be completely realistic of real world conditions. And also it's only on the people who they do the experiment on, it's not on other people. So it, it kind of, you need to model this. So the models that we like to fit are complicated and they involve a lot of tuning and there's no deterministic way to do it. You Well, you need algorithms. So you need a way of fitting a complicated model to data and making a lot of adjustments. And then the algorithms that we have are stochastic. And so we need to do research in more efficient algorithms in building trust in the algorithms, uh, testing them, validating them in different ways. 
So we spend a lot of time doing that. Again, very much like if all I wanted to do in life was build an electric car, I might spend all my time working on batteries because that's a limiting factor. Mm-hmm. Computation is not the only limiting factor. The biggest limiting factor is probably data quality. And the next limiting factor is the quality of our models. But right. computation is also a limiting factor because if we don't have good computation, we can't fit the models that we want to fit. Um, so that's right. that's where that comes from. All right. All right. Cool. Uh, do we have any hopes? Do uh, well. No, I'm not going to try to explain how some of this works. But uh, <laughs> let's uh, 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 let's say um, various methods of searching posterior distributions are uh, are uh, can get uh, pretty pretty intense. Uh, I think. Um, so okay, um, I saw a. Let's see if. Um, there's any, there was actually, there was one story you gave on, in a talk you gave recently on, on causal inference. And, you know, you said uh, someone pointed out to you that the, your, your book from 10 years ago called Red State, Blue State had the, uh, or Red, yeah, Red State, wait, what was it? Red State, sorry, am I, am I giving the, the, the title right? Let me make sure I got that right. It's uh, Red State, Blue State, Rich State, Poor State, right? And someone pointed out, that um, the subtitle was "Why Americans Vote the Way They Do," um, when you had said that uh, it it wasn't about causality. Is that am I saying that? Is that how it happened? Oh well, I guess. I mean, we said why Americans vote the way they do, but we didn't right. really. I don't even know what that means, right? right why? Right. Why do you vote? So we 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 weren't really. We didn't interview anybody, or it was really descriptive. So a better. Uh, you know, a better title would have been like who votes for whom or something like that, or yeah. how do people vote or how is it changing or I don't, I don't know. I, 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 I yeah. Yeah. It, it seems like you, it, it seems like when you quote results that are, you know, descriptive, it almost suggests a causal relationship. That's what my, yeah, that's what my colleague Jennifer Hill says. So I, I do. I often do work that I consider to be descriptive because I feel like there's a division of labor that some people want to explain the world, which is great. But I'd like to get them, like I'd like to give them the facts that they want to explain. I think one of the problems, like a lot of bad social science, is trying to explain things that aren't actually facts at all. You could spend tons of time trying to explain why something's happening, but it's not even happening. So right. getting the details right. But you know, then Jennifer will say, well, why why do I consider this particular description useful? And she would argue that I have an underlying causal question, uh, which maybe I do. Right. That reminds me of like, you know, w- when I was at Foursquare for, for two years in there, I was working on the ad measurement product and they wanted to know if the ads were causing people to go into into uh, into chains, into, into certain types of stores. And, um, first of all, it was really hard to suss that out. And I feel like, um, the time I spent on it was after that, I was like, I don't want to spend any more time on the problem of getting people to eat more subway clubs, but I feel like the, (laughs) the, uh, the, the, the theoretical, 
underpinnings of what we were doing was way more important. So I want to kind of uh, uh, like uh, dive more into that. That's why I'm kind of trying to write more about, you know, how we did causal influence, but I don't, th- uh, inference, but I don't feel like I ever solved the problem. I only found all the pitfalls uh, of, uh, of causal inference, like all the, all the places where we screwed up, where, you know, we included a variable that, that, uh, you know, ex- uh, we included X caused Y versus Y caused X or something like that, you know, um, an ad that caused people to move locations um, was a problem because location was an input because, you know, the first, you know, we think like your base probability of visiting, say, Starbucks might be the town that you live in, but that particular setup didn't work when we, when it was a... Um, a, a travel campaign because the ad caused someone to travel to begin with. So we ran into like all those types of problems there. Yeah. I, I think that we should think of our modeling and our statistical analysis, not as static, but as evolving. So yeah. you mm-hmm. do your inference and then you try to validate it and then you see problems and then you move forward. It's hard to jump to the end, and maybe we shouldn't always be trying to. So it's it's rather like you look at it of a, a process of improving versus perfecting, you know. And at some point, yeah. you get to a point where, hey, this explains things most of the time. You know, we used to run into problems a lot. Now, occasionally, we see you know confounders we didn't. Uh, uh, you know, we didn't consider, or we, we see some problems. But if so long as you're improving, that'll happen less over time. Yes, it's like Cantor's diagonal argument in mathematics. There will there will always be something. There'll always be something. Okay, that's that's actually really helpful. That's a good way to think about it. Uh, believe it or not, um, I wanted to mention. I know you have a book that came out recently or, or last year, and unfortunately, I don't have it with me. I should have gotten it, but it's called. Regression and other stories, and it, the premise sounded really interesting because it sounded like, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounded like you're going through the process of statistical regression um, with stories. Maybe some of them are um, uh, 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 very, you know, maybe it was kind of an approach that's less purely mathematical and more story-driven. So can you talk about that a little bit? Well, those stories are integrated into the material, but it it is, it's it's focused more on the model. Well, first, it substitutes computation for mathematics, and so there's very little math. Um, right. I think that people there's a lot of places that people can find the math if they want, but I think most users like uh, paradoxically a usual treatment has enough math that then it disengages people from thinking mathematically. So if there is a derivation using matrix algebra of the least squares solution, that's kind of beautiful. And most students are not going to follow it. And, but they will kind of like stare at it and kind of blow their math budget as it were, on not understanding that. Meanwhile, they never fully understand the idea that the standard error goes like one over square root of n. Uh, that's something that maybe we can teach. Things like the where the estimate comes from, we say it comes from a computer program, uh, but then I think it's important for people to understand the model. 
So when I teach the class, we do a lot of examples where we give the people the regression line and ask people to graph it, or we give them the graph and ask them to draw the line or give interpretations of the results. So the, so yeah. the, the focus is, is more on the, on the model and less on the, the mathematics. Right. So his applications. Okay, cool. Well, I'll, I'll definitely check it out. So there's that book. I know I've got your textbook on Bayesian data analysis right here. I know you have a, a bunch of them. Uh, we're uh, coming about out of time. Do you have any last thoughts and where can people find you online? Well, I think you can Google me and probably <laughs> find my Andrew, writings or well, my YouTube. Well, it will also be on the, the show notes page uh, in, yeah. in, in this episode. So. Oh. All right, Andrew Gelman, thanks for coming on the show. Okay, it was a pleasure. All right, that was great. So this is episode 201, and the show notes will be on localmaxradio.com slash 201, 201. So let's summarize a little bit. One of my key takeaways here was the three bottlenecks in data research, and I think this applies to all data research. I think this applies to machine learning, uh, all data science, and that's data quality, model quality, and computation. So good way to think about it. All right. I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving for those of you who are Americans or in the U.S. For uh, those who celebrate Hanukkah, including fellow Jews, have a happy Hanukkah, which just started last night. And uh, I think we'll go through uh, to the next episode. Uh, we are just hopping from holiday to holiday here. Just one more month left in the year. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. To support The Local Maximum, sign up for exclusive content and our online community at Maximum.Locals.com. The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at LocalMaxRadio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to LocalMaxRadio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power. 